Welcome to Literary Speaking with Crystal Lee Quibell. Literary Speaking is the author's guide to writing and publishing, sharing tips and tricks for aspiring authors. Crystal Lee's expert guests will bring you the latest information on how to write and publish your book into being. Are you ready to tell your story? Here's your host. Welcome to Literary Speaking. I'm your host, Crystal Lee Quibel, and today my guest is author and speaker Rima Zaman. Her forthcoming memoir, I Am Yours, is available for pre-order now, and it's going to debut February 5th. You might recognize her from her episode on the New York Times Dear Sugars podcast hosted by Cheryl Strayed and Steve Almond, and you might have heard of her viral essay in The Guardian, The Lies Pictures Tell. Her essays have been nominated multiple times for Pushcart Prizes and have been featured in publications like The Guardian, Rumpus, Narratively, Bitch Media, Brown Girl Magazine, and many, many others. I have to say that I Am Yours is a brilliant memoir that completely won me over with the poetic structure and the illustrations with pen and ink. They just jump off the page. And this memoir has a specific unconventional story structure like you've never read before. I am so thrilled and honored to welcome Rima to the show today. Hi, Rima. Hi, Crystal Lee. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, no problem. So unlike most memoirs, I find with mm-hmm. I Am Yours, you, you used the detail of your life from birth to age 31 versus the traditional format where you're only supposed to, you know, pick a portion of time or a specific event. Mm-hmm. And I think it really makes the story compelling because as we watch it unfold, it's just really interesting to see how you use that format in such a different way. Um, how did you decide on the autobiography sort of format to that? Well, thank you. Um, it was a very conscious decision. And I wanted to begin I Am Yours in the voice of my child self um, because to understand any human being, we have to return to the beginning. We have to return to the beginning of our stories, each Mm. one of us, to understand who we are, why we have arrived to the present state, and how we want to make mindful decisions about our future. And there, there were numerous reasons, and that was one of them. And another reason I began the story in childhood because prejudice begins in childhood and none of us are born fearing each other. None of Mm -hmm. us is born hating another person due to their skin, race, religion, gender, accent, passport, economic background, none of that. And it is as children, we're, uh, we're born innocent and then we are taught to become either the pain or the love that is modeled to us. And we are taught to fear, we are taught to distrust, and we are taught to loathe either other, you know, other people or ourselves. And I want to show mm-hmm. how all of that occurs. And instead of using an adult voice that was speaking analytically about the past through flashback, I wanted to ground it in the eyes and life of a four-year-old child, a three-year-old child, and to let the audience recall viscerally their own experiences of learning fear or encountering fear or hatred as a child for the first time. And because my background is acting. So you know how in writing we're told, show, don't tell. And Mm -hmm. my training as an actress has taken that one step forward, which is let's not just show or tell, let's feel. 
And um, so I started it off in the child self because it creates that very immediate, urgent feeling. And, mm-hmm. and it also strikes, um, and by letting you feel, it invokes a clearer, pure connection uh, that, and through, between audience and artist. And I think that's how we realize our oneness. You know, um, mm-hmm. also I knew that this book would look into my, my relationships with my parents and my parents' relationship. And I never wanted to speak of them in any way that was remotely judgmental. I wanted mm-hmm. to speak of my parents in the most loving, compassionate, non-judgmental way. And I think as using an adult voice to go back in time and analyze my parents' marriage would, um, it was just, it, it wasn't a tone I wanted to use. I wanted to just show and let the audience feel the effects of their marriage, you know, the effects of their mm-hmm. relationship. Um, and I think in any book, key elements that an author must develop are urgency, resonance, emotional vibrance, and immediacy in the pace and richness of the text as well as an authentic intimacy with the reader, because once we've created authentic intimacy and loyalty with the reader, that's how we create engagement of attention. Mm-hmm. That's how we're mm-hmm. able to keep an, an audience, um, you know, enraptured for, we have 300 pages. We have to keep it in attention. And, and grounding it, grounding the voice in the child self, and then grounding it in the present tense and first person, um, because that's also like a, a very conscious literary element and device of I am yours. Um, there's nothing in past tense. Everything is first person. It allows mm-hmm. for an authentic urgency to be in the text. And it, it allows really for that does. endearment. Thank you. Thank you so much. And again, that's all my acting training. Um, mm. Acting is always done in the first person present tense. You know, it's um, very rarely will you have a soliloquy or, or a monologue. And that's when you know, um, a character will talk about something in the past, but you have to do it very delicately and very Mm -hmm. sparingly, economically, to use that device. um, Because the audience's attention will wane. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it is hard because we want to grip them right from the beginning. And that's what I found. You have this beautiful braiding between you know, you're speaking in the present tense and it and it's sort of braiding your relationship with your parents and your current relationships and and your relationship with yourself as well. I mean, it was just so beautifully done. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. And, you know, I, I my life has had, I've had the enormous privilege and honor of being able to uh, be a teacher or a guardian or a caregiver to many children from the time I was in high school. And I have found that children are our greatest teachers. Mm-hmm. And they're also the most diplomatic, disarming, and naturally engaging character. Um, and if written well, I feel every human being will be able to respond respond to a child. And so all of that kind of went into using my child self as the initial um, portal into the book. Mm-hmm. I just, I'm so, you know, I, I keep going over the book because I was sent an advanced reader copy. So as we know, right. advanced reader copies aren't always, you know, but you had the beautiful artwork in it. And I just, it was so striking because it, it fits so well with each 
chapter and each portion of it. So I felt like it brought another aspect. And that's what I love about it. It's not not what you expect when you pick up a memoir. And you had that way of reading the reader from the beginning. And I even loved, you know, you you spoke about the children that you've worked with. And one in particular Mm -hmm. really, really stood out, which was uh, the boy named Lion. And oh, just how wow. you, yes. yeah. And I really felt like I don't know if this was the intention, but I felt like almost in a way you're sort of nursing him back to life and giving him confidence mm. and teaching him resilience and and building him up. And at the same time, it seems like it's at this point in your life where you know you've overcome these abusive relationships and you're thriving and you're in a great place. And now you're able to do that for him. And it's almost like you're nursing yourself back to that strong mm, resilience. Thank you. And it was really, really thank special. Mm-hmm. Oh, that means so much to me. Thank you so much. No, um, everything was, it was, it was a very, uh, writing this book was a very sacred experience for me and I don't use that, that term lightly at all. It, everything was very intentional and it was also very mindful. I was, um, have, you know, I, the first draft was 600,000 words <laughs> and wow. because there's so many, right. And there's so many scenes that go on in a human life. Right. And that mm-hmm. have meant something to that person. So I put down every single scene, every single relationship that has been of value that has gone into the shaping of me. And then my job through draft number two, three, four, the final draft that is now in hardcover copy. I just saw my my books yesterday on FaceTime with my publisher. Yeah, um, the final draft is draft number 14, I believe. It has been through many incarnations. And so all of those scenes that are in the book were very intentionally um, chosen to, Mm -hmm. to speak on numerous levels and so exactly what you just described, that was my goal. So I'm so happy that it came Oh, good. <laughs> uh, and, and, yeah, and because, you know, again, it's like instead of telling or showing feeling, right? And, of course, mm-hmm. you know, a person can very uh, inelegantly say, now I have arrived at a place of resilience and groundedness in my life. And that's not a very, you know, that's an inelegant and not very creative way to tell that or explain that. And instead, mm-hmm. I wanted to find key scenes from my life that just very, um, that very gently but powerfully expressed and communicate, communicated that sentiment without me explaining it. That's the job of an, of an author, right? Mm-hmm. If we, or the first draft is either very short or incredibly long. And then our job is about developing or carving by finding, by identifying which scenes perfectly communicate that which we are trying to share with the world. Mm-hmm. And for instance, you know, all, um, the, 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 the book is in four acts, and the second act is about my, my first marriage, which was a very toxic and it became a very abusive marriage. And, um, you know, the first draft of that, there were like a gazillion scenes of, of just mm-hmm. how you know, painful that became. And then I, I had to be very, very diligent about choosing, you know, ultimately seven or 10 scenes that told the arc of that particular relationship mm-hmm. uh, without letting the pace of the book sag, 
um, giving just enough information without it becoming just overly painful. Um, and uh, one of one of the scenes that I love so much in the book is the scene of the car crash, where I crash this car, and my husband, my husband at the time, his his response, everything you need to know about that man lives in that scene, mm-hmm. and it's a very economical yeah. scene. It's about two thousand words, and boom, that's all you need to know, and you yeah. see the entire arc of how he became the person he is, uh, how we found ourselves in this marriage, how it's connected to my relationship with my father, all of that, everything lives in that one scene. That's what our job, when we're editing our books, it's about going through all of those scenes and finding out exactly which ones perfectly uh, perfectly communicate the larger story at hand. Yeah. And it is, I mean, I, I, I think... Somebody once said um, that I interviewed, I think it was Carrie Cohen, said, like, your first draft is your angriest draft. And it's where you get all of it out. Like, everything comes out. And then you have to sort of mine through the wreckage and Mm -hmm. and sort of piece those those critical scenes together. It really is like going scene by scene. Absolutely. I I always say the first draft is about therapy and it's about getting out all of it, especially, I think, for... Any, any author who has come from a marginalized group of any kind, because marginalization, you know, be, be it based mm-hmm. on religion or gender or economic status, there's always a voicelessness and a silencing mm-hmm. we have felt through society. So our first draft tends to be very, very wield, like huge and wieldy because finally we're giving our voice permission to speak. And it is good for us to give ourselves full permission to do just that, because finally, after yeah. decades of being quiet and at the outskirts yeah. of society, here we are voicing what, has, what we have kept inside. Mm-hmm. And so then it's about, okay, understanding, well, as now as my job as an artist, what speaks to the, what about the personal speaks to the universal truth mm-hmm. and the arc that rises from that. It's so, I mean, there's just so, so many scenes and so many things. Like, I could dissect all day, <laughs> but I oh, really enjoyed so that. <laughs> I really enjoyed that, The also the imaginary friend. Because when mm, I started reading, I, when I started reading it, I thought you were addressing the reader. And in mm. a way, it felt like it shifted throughout where it was like, it was almost like you believed that, you know, you were speaking directly to the reader as we're going through this experience right. with you. And then it sort of evolved. So I'd love to hear, you know, mm. your experience through writing about that uh, with that imaginary friend in mind. Incredible. Thank you so much. I, um, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so proud of how uh, that, that this worked, <laughs> that I pulled it Yes. <laughs> I'm just so proud that it's actually speaking because... Um, so to to just you know uh, elaborate it for those who haven't read the book yet or who are about to dive into the book, the imaginary best friend is yeah I, I the entire book is written as though I'm speaking to my imaginary best friend from, from childhood, who who I meet, um, whom I meet at age three and then I never let mm-hmm. go, and as the book develops as the central character I develop, so does the imaginary best friend character. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, um, 
So at some point you're thinking, is this our inner voice that I'm speaking to? Is this God? Is this a wise ancestor? Is it society itself? Is it the reader? Is it, um, is it faith? Is it, you know, is it our higher future self? All of those things. And so from the very beginning of writing I Am Yours, my goal was to create a manual, a guide of healing for myself and anyone else who needs it. Mm-hmm. And I knew that for the, the voice of the book to be sincerely and lastingly effective in its healing, it had to be soft and tender when appropriate, and it had to be steely and protectively fierce when appropriate. Mm-hmm. And it had to be rightfully enraged on behalf of the reader and myself towards the wounds inflicted on us by an abusive partner, relative, or society at large. And in mm-hmm. essence, the voice of the book had to be that of a, of a wise, loving, loyal guardian, an imaginary best friend from childhood mm-hmm. whom we never released. And I so that's that. where the... <laughs> thank you. And, <laughs> and I also... Um, so for, and another personal goal, when I say, you know, it was a manual of healing for myself, Healing, I mean healing from the sexual trauma, the series of sexual traumas and abusive relationships I had gone through. And then also just, you know, from being a woman of color in society and you, Mm. after a while, you just accumulate all of these infractions and wounds and um, microaggressions and larger aggressions. Uh, As a woman of any any culture, we, by the time we're in our teens, we have a, a stack of those, right? And so there's mm-hmm. just this necessary healing that we have to go through if we really want to step into our full strength. And I also, um, and I know for me, all of those wounds had metastasized as a debilitating anorexia that I had battled from age 15 until mm-hmm. age 30. And I was 30 years old when I sat down to write this book. And I had this very strict order for myself that I wanted to get over my anorexia, I really wanted to understand and unpack it, understand mm-hmm. its, its roots, I understand why I was harboring and, you know, re, uh, taking action on this deep self-loathing. Where had I taught, where, ha- where, where had I learned to loathe mm-hmm. myself so severely that I was then starving myself, right? Which is yes. a question I think every woman at some point in our lives, we have asked ourselves that. Who was mm-hmm. it? That, you know, who was it that taught me, or what was it that yes. taught me to not like myself? That I'm doing mm-hmm. these things to myself, right? And so, um, and I and I realized that even if I had, at that time, if I had moments where I would talk to myself unkindly, was there ever a voice in my head that would only speak to myself kindly and lovingly? Mm-hmm. And I realized, you know, um, I I had memories of being a child and not speaking to myself with hate, but speaking to myself just lovingly because I didn't know anything else because I hadn't been taught anything otherwise. All of that. um, Yes. It was the imaginary best friend. It's so powerful just because so so many women can relate to that moment where, Mm. you know, where did this come from? What is the root of this? Right. And it feels like it's a culmination of, you know, friends, family, media, you know, social media now. There's all these, like, monsters feeding into the machine, right, to make you think, like, you're not good enough. And there was one 
particular sort of moment in the book. And, and when I read it, I was like, yes, I totally understand that. And it was when you said, you always know how to recognize a fellow mm. anorexic. And yes, that. Um, I'm probably going to butcher the sentence. I should have saved it. But mm, okay. But it was just about how you notice them. And then there's like a flash of a moment where you see how hollow they feel. Mm, um, right. That hollowness. And you recognize it within each other. And I've definitely, you know, struggled with eating disorders. But that just clicked because there is this sort of moment that you catch with different people. And I've been able to, most people right. I can spot it. We can spot each other because we see those moments, right? And it, it was right. just such a great recognition of that. And mm. I think it, it was just, it just stood out to me for some reason. Thank you so much. And the line uh, is, yeah, I can always spot a fellow anorexic. It's not a physical, um, it's not a physical sensation. It's more of an emotional, the, the energy. Mm-hmm. It's about uh, her looking caved in, like something is hunting her. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said so poignantly, there are numerous fo- forces hunting us. Mm-hmm. And it's just a matter of how deeply and in what way we allow that to manifest. And also, I think, too, just recognizing the way the relationship sort of went as you went through the scenes and and we see these abusive relationships with your husband and it's sort of like there's this crescendo where it's like it's going to get bad something really 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 awful is going to happen and then it's almost like there's this sort of quietness that you exude and this sort of calmness where you're done Mm. like there's always that moment when you're in that abusive relationship and I think for any women listening that still wonder, like, when's it going to be enough? You know when you know. There's just that moment. Mm. And I think that you displayed that really beautifully because there it, it was almost like there was no fanfare. It was just like, right. we're never going to see each other again. This is over. We're done. Or just like a, 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 it seemed like such a smooth transition when I think people expect it to be chaotic and torn and, and a big you know, physical blowout, but as we've seen, abuse right. is so much more than the physical. There's so many levels. Um, like you Thank you. Thank you so much. It, um, it was really, um, like, writing this book taught me how to write, you know, because I, I challenged myself uh, to, to write about these very delicate and fraught and complex themes, such as abuse. And I had to learn how to write about it in a way that was uh, powerful, clear, yet delicately handled, compassionately mm-hmm. handled, too. Uh, I never wanted to let the ex-husband character feel like I was exploiting that story by mm-hmm. any means, you know, mm-hmm. um, because I also feel that it's any kind of exploitive writing, it's, uh, what's the point of that? Because art, mm-hmm. I believe art is about moving society forward and uh, so I, it was, I was very conscious about the way I unpacked abuse for, for the reader to understand um, also because there's so much shame around abusive relationships and yes. uh, the stigma right and, and the stigma that um, so many 
women and men who have been the person who was abused in a in a in a, in a, in a relationship. Uh, we tend to then berate ourselves for saying, "Oh, I was so stupid to stay there," and mm-hmm. you know how you know here I am, an educated woman. How could I possibly do that? Yeah. And and some of and because of that internalized shaming, we actually then we tend to rationalize everything that's going on, and we forgive everything that's going on for much longer than we than we deserve to forgive it. Right? That mm-hmm. it deserves our mm-hmm. forgiveness, and we stay in a, inside those abusive cycles thinking, okay, if I just work hard enough, if I just find the magical combination of words and gestures and activities, then finally he will change. He will, he will, grow, yes. he will grow kinder. And uh, so it's this repeated cycle of self-punishment that we stay inside that. And so I wanted to show all of that uh, to alleviate the shame and to release people from the shame so that they could take action and get out of any relationship that they happen to be in that is abusive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and um, you know, um, I, w- I write how in, in, in I Am Yours that it was while I was in that marriage that I started to wake up with these fully constructed essays that were sent to me by, um, you know, this inner voice inside of me. And the more, and, and there were all these essays that were, they were the coalescence of my lived and learned knowledge mm-hmm. uh, as a women's studies major and then who had studied abusive relationships in college and to study the psychology of abuse. And there I was having found myself in, in a relationship like that. And mm-hmm. so I, as I would type up, and these essays were, you know, they were, they were meticulously crafted debates and exposés that were analyzing what was going on in my day-to-day life with my ex-husband. And as I typed up and and read those essays, I started to feel with the clarity and validation I needed to speak back to him. And which was very, very, it was a crucial turning point in our marriage because so much of why I stayed inside that relationship and that why so many people stay inside abusive relationships is gaslighting and the normalization mm-hmm. of the pain and mm-hmm. the normalization of degradation toward women at large. Yes. Right? Yeah. That, that really... society has put us through. Right. And exactly. the gaslighting we've been... Right. And so writing and, t- writing and typing up those essays and then reading them back to myself was the exact counter argument to his gaslighting and the gaslighting I had experienced at the hand of society my entire life and mm-hmm. um and it al- and it, those are huge components of intimate partner violence and they're pivotal in enabling and perpetuating the cycle of violence and so yeah. you know like you said like be it at school or at, in the media or through everyday conversation we women are continually told that our value is less than and we're mm-hmm. also continually told that our capacity for knowing what is right and true is less than trustworthy. It's less valued and it's less intelligent than that of men. So all of these Mm -hmm. elements start to conspire when we find ourselves, you know, God forbid, in an abusive relationship. We're told, be it by our partner or by society, that we're being oversensitive, that we're overanalyzing, and that uh, we should just, our job as women is to be, you know, perennial nurturers and forgiving mm-hmm. of everyone around us, and it's our job to heal and fix everyone around us, right? 
Exactly. And so I started realizing all of that and, and, and unpacking all of that through these essays that I started writing while I was with him. And once I began connecting all of the dots and the architecture, the larger architecture at hand, it started filling me with this very, like you said, this like very quiet strength and peace of mind and clarity. And, and then, and I was just able to say, okay, we are done. Uh, I have, I have been inside this cycle and enabled this cycle for as long as I had because I kept on thinking it was my responsibility to find solutions. It was my responsibility to help him alleviate his insecurity that was mm-hmm. being projected upon me in the form of intimate partner abuse. And I realized, you know, it's not my job. It was his job to raise himself into a man. Um, yeah. I, it wasn't my job to continually be his handmaiden uh, mm-hmm. any longer. And that was done. Yeah. I think it, yeah. you know, we're so taught to suffocate our intuition from the time we we're mm-hmm. small. Like, go give that stranger Absolutely. a hug, be polite, smile. Mm-hmm. Even when we know deep in our gut, we get that sense that somebody is so bad for us and we are taught to try to ignore it to suffocate it yeah and I think right and played that really well because it it came up right there was like you you, um during your relationship after the divorce um right you knew from the moment you were like like this man's gonna like eat me alive kind of thing yes yeah and um and and I wanted to show because I um from the way I understand the female condition is, and again, this is like why I started the book as a child character, right? Mm-hmm. Because I wanted to show how all of these relationships that we are modeled and that the different conversations we are subjected to from the time we are young girls, um, it then all aggregates into then mm-hmm. being adult women and when we're confronted by violence or degradation, be it in a partnership or in the family or in the workplace or online or on the street, by the time we're adults, we've been so deeply conditioned to second-guess and downplay our rightful intuition and our rightful indignation in the face of any kind of disrespect, Mm -hmm. right? And that ingrained, that lifetime of ingrained gaslighting allows us to over-forgive, rationalize, and then accept cruelty and we keep on, even after we've gained some sort of foothold over what's going on, it's so easy to then, quote unquote, fall off the bandwagon. And that's why I have that, that relationship I went through after I got out of this marriage, I fell into yet another abusive partner because um, being, because I wanted to show it almost like an addiction, right? Mm-hmm. But like, mm-hmm. it takes a long time to purge and heal from any addiction that has been taught to us, including the addiction that so many women have been taught to, to, to model and be part of, which is the acceptance towards cruelty. It's always been, you know, taught to us. Like, it's our job to fix them. Like maybe you'll be the right. one that tames this wild beast. And it's yes, not our job. And that, it's not our job. <laughs> right. And it's not even, and exactly. And it's like, it's, and from the outside, it can feel like almost an ego-driven thing that, oh, yeah, yeah. she, and, and perhaps to some degree it is, because, but it goes deeper. It's not, oh, I will be the one to conquer him per se, but it's more about 
being told from young, from the time we're, I mean, from the time we're young girls, we're handed a toy baby to take care of while mm-hmm. our brothers and our male counterparts are told, you are yep. leaders of a future generation. You're the future leaders of the world. Go build a Lego spaceship, right? Yeah, like, exactly. Go, <laughs> go on to a big adventure. Like, build a Lego empire. And we're mm-hmm. told, like, here, take care of this baby and make sure she doesn't, like, you have to take care of this baby, otherwise your toy baby will die. <laughs> you know, like, you have mm-hmm. to feed it and bathe it and find, and, like, you know, sew little dresses for it. And that's, so, of mm-hmm. course, that's, again, it, like, all aggregates. It all, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, so then later on, when, we're, when we encounter an abusive partner, we're, our natural and immediate and uh, conditioned response is compassion. Oh, you know, bullies are governed by insecurity, and it is true, they are. And mm-hmm. so now I must do my all to help him feel better about himself so that he doesn't so unkindly towards me and and that's like one of my favorite lines and it's actually um i don't think it's in the galley because but it is in the final book it's i have learned the decisive difference that yes although i was born to be a conduit of love compassion and forgiveness i simultaneously i simultaneously hold the right to refuse to bear the burden of another's shadows oh that's powerful right Thank mm-hmm. you. And because I feel so many women, we are all born, all human beings, we're born with immeasurable potential, immeasurable mm-hmm. talent, immeasurable intelligence. And then so many women are taught that our highest goals and priorities and destiny in life is the caretaking of a man. And I often look around at society and at groups of women and I wonder who among us were born to be amazing artists, amazing scientists, amazing CEOs, amazing inventors, but instead, because she was taught that her job, her greatest um, checklist, the checkpoint that she, she's supposed to check off on her list of things to do is to raise and he, to heal and raise a man. So she's become mm-hmm. the CEO of his life, right? Yes. Um, and you know, like I hate, I hate, hate, hate the idiom, like or the, the the saying that behind every powerful man is a woman who's taking care of him. Oh my right? gosh! Is a, is a, yes. a powerful woman, right? And but like, why that are we, just like said to me, <laughs> right? And like, let why is that a great thing to say? Like, let's yeah. stop trumpeting that as a wonderful thing to grow up into or to exactly. teach our daughters to become. Like that is not. A wonderful thing. That's that's you know. Yes. I mean that. I that's like a divide and conquer technique by patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Because if we're busy taking care of men and helping them build their legacy, we are too distracted mm-hmm. to to discover and build ours. Well, yes, and and like in the book, how your your ex husband, your now ex husband. You know, he kind of mocks the fact that you want to write a book and he's like, I can't believe it. And he's just so smarmy about it. And, you know, it's it's that typical like, oh, that's so cute. You want to do something, you know, it's like that down talking like narcissism that they do where they Mm -hmm. get you in that spiral. And 
it was just really lovely to see how you transcended that and you would just remain calm and you would, you had this way of navigating your way out of that relationship to achieve your dream. And I think that's Thank you. what makes the story even more special because we do get to see the journey of you coming to this realization that you want to write a book. You do write the book and it, it becomes published and I'm <laughs> certain a massive bestseller. It works on a meta level as well because if it's not, you know, him stifling her dream to be a writer, mm-hmm. it's something else. And yeah. it's, but it all comes down to, you know, a misogynist trying to stifle the voice and the potential largesse of a woman. Mm-hmm. However, mm-hmm. That, that takes shape, right? And yeah. in my life, it's taken shape in a very um, almost like literal manner where he mm-hmm. tried to keep me quiet so that I could yeah. speak. And he tried to do everything to not get me to not let me write and mm-hmm. um, have be a published author. And then part of my journey into you know claiming and stepping into my power was that yes, it's an it was a very quiet and clear resolution and conclusion of this this hero's journey, which ended in publication. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for so many women, women, it's um, if it's not publication, it's something else. And because it's about claiming yeah. the full prowess and potential of our voices. It's so and, uh, you know so important for women to to be able you. to read this and to review it and know that it's possible. Because I think there are you know those moments where we have those dark nights of the soul where it's like, well, maybe maybe I deserve this. Maybe I will right. never do this. And then it's almost like we have to have that that downturn and then, you know, build ourselves and be like, no, we're definitely getting out of this. We're definitely mm-hmm. achieving this dream, whether it's a book or a show or an audition of some kind, whatever it is. Right. You know, and I Thank think it you. does. It provides that hope for people to read and experience it and know, you know, there's so many different forms of abuse. And I think that is a really important segment of it as well. Because everybody Thank thinks so much. that it's just about being hit. And there's one point in the book where you say, you know, it would be almost better if there was a physical bruise, like a receipt to show yes. that there's abuse. Because people don't quite, I mean, I think it's becoming more known and and people are more knowledgeable now. But mm. at one time, people just sort of dismiss that. Like, that's not abuse. That's right. just you know, that's your husband and you just listen to that. <laughs> like just right. wild that that was ever, you know, taught. And Completely. I'm really hopeful that this is a, a catalyst for discussions that open up the Thank topic you. of abuse. Thank now, you so like, much. I'm so oh, glad. So welcome. Um, and it's, <laughs> and it's, um, I'm actually, uh, that was, I mean, it was all, I wanted to show how there are various, layers to abuse, including, um, I think two of the biggest ones beyond physical is sexual abuse and economic abuse. Mm-hmm. And, and those are, I mean, they're big. From those, and I think those yeah. are the ways that actually women are more, are more likely to be abused. And because yeah. again, they're invisible forms of abuse. Yeah. Um, and again, like, because from the time we're young girls, we're told to be 
enormously uh, compassionate and forgiving and mm-hmm. and fair and everything, it kind of all like it it all just allows us to enable and rationalize when things like sexual abuse or economic abuse step in to our lives. Um, so when I, when I say sexual abuse or economic abuse, like we're, we're all told to be the cool girl, right? And especially when yes. we start dating, we don't want to make, we don't want to be oversensitive. We mm-hmm. don't want to, we're told to, we're told to like be cool and like flexible and, um, you know, just like, you know, cover girl, easy breezy cover girl with whatever exactly. guys. And we don't want to be high maintenance, right? And yeah. all of that, like I, I've gone back in my history and seen like, oh my gosh, from the time I was a young 17 year old, I was 17 when I started having sexual relationships uh, or relationships that had sex and romance and everything. And there were so many instances where there was just that gray area where, yes, it wasn't rape, but it wasn't authentic love either. Mm-hmm. Right? And it was, mm-hmm. there was definitely a gray area of abuse over there where it was definitely yeah. a power play where if I didn't go along with what he wanted, I would be perceived as high maintenance, as prude. Mm-hmm. Um, he would, I knew he would start rumors about me in high school, yeah. in college, all of that. And that is sexual abuse, right? And yeah, and a lot of people um, see it. Absolutely, absolutely. They and don't. same with economic abuse where, again, because from the time we're toddlers, we're told to be very you know, kind and, and mm-hmm. easy and easygoing. And yeah. so the moment we start making an income, it's all about taking care of the, the whole. So taking care of your partner and the children and yourself. And so naturally you have a joint bank account and then should, lo and behold, your partner turn out to be an abusive misogynist who wants to be very controlling about all of the household income. Again, mm-hmm. we're taught that we should be forgiving and patient with him. But that's economic yeah. abuse, right? It so is. I yeah. wanted to show how all of that is just so easy to fall into, even if, like, look, I was a women's studies major in college. And, mm-hmm. and so it just, my, my life allowed for this very, um, for this conversation to be had, you know. And I'm so proud that now, actually, I'm yours as being adopted into various high schools and colleges, into curriculum. They're into curriculum oh, in so nationwide good. schools because, thank you, because, it, it's a very um, eff- effective teaching tool to mm-hmm. understand and unpack and ha- have these discussions, these very necessary discussions about toxic versus healthy relationships, toxic versus healthy sex, uh, self-concept, um, abuse culture, understanding shame culture, understanding trauma and how to heal and rise from trauma, uh, how to find one's voice and therefore find one's power as a change agent and leader in this world. And I'm just very excited that, yes, you know, as of February 5th, it'll, it'll be in the hands of those who need it and including mm-hmm. students around the country and hopefully soon the world. Yeah. I'm just, I'm so grateful that you're here to talk about this and we're slightly <laughs> shifting to sort of the technical side of things, but Right. When you sat down and, you know, you wrote this first draft and you right. you got everything out on paper, time frame wise, I always like to share with any aspiring writers that are listening, mm. you know, an author's process from writing to pu- like to the pu- like publishing date and beyond. 
right. timeline wise, how how long did it take you before you know you prepared yourself and and ready to be you know to approach an agent, or did the agent approach yeah. you? So I I and I, I say this in the book. The I started writing it November twenty eighth, two thousand and thirteen, mm-hmm. and I left New York on June first. 2013, and I arrived in Portland, in, in Oregon, with this very clear goal to write, to take my life and shape it into a memoir. And, um, and it took me a few months to understand how I wanted to write this book. Mm-hmm. And a few things happened where I actually wrote an entire different book <laughs> um, <laughs> called, called The Wound Tree, actually, The oh, Wound wow. Tree, because much like a family tree, all of us, we go through mm-hmm. a wound tree and there's intergenerational trauma that we've all been consciously or subconsciously, um, you know, um, uh, subjected to and that, ha- that has lived in our family, every family really. And mm-hmm. then through the different, and so trauma is passed on, wounds are passed on because their uh, unhealed wounds will be then, you know, they'll, They'll metastasize and be modeled in different ways. And then we take that on, and then it's our job every generation to break that cycle, to heal that cycle. And so I, I had started writing this book called The Wound Tree, and it was actually not a memoir. It was written as prescriptive nonfiction. And I got about 70,000 words in, and it was, you know, it was a good, it was a well-written book. But it was completely, it lacked voice, it lacked, um, it lacked, uh, it stopped engaging my attention. So I was like, okay, mm-hmm. this is definitely not the book I want to put out into the world. And, I, and yeah. I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I'm so grateful for my acting background because it's really sharpened my intuition for understanding when a script feels alive and vibrant and when mm-hmm. a manuscript or a script feels dead on the page. Mm-hmm. And it, it helps me be very critical uh, in a very healthy way about my writing. Because so I can, see, I can go, get 70,000 words into a project and then not be like torn about letting it go, but understanding, okay, it's not mm-hmm. working anymore. There's certain things that are good and I'm going to use that for another project. But it's as, a, as, a, as a piece, it wasn't working. And I realized one of the main things that wasn't working was who was I to write a non, nonfiction prescriptive book? You know, mm-hmm. I, um, and the only, and my, my sister and I, um, she's, she's my, one of my best friends and we have a very, she, we have a very sisterly relationship, which is I would take a bullet for her and she would take a bullet for me. And we're also the, the two people who get under each other's skin more so than anybody else. Yeah. <laughs> and she's able to, to get truth out of me in a way that other people almost can't. Because we have this radical intimacy, you know, this radical closeness that sometimes we have enormous fights because of it, right? And so mm-hmm. over Thanksgiving in 2013, she asked me, who are you to write a book? Which, is in, which ended up, that line ended up in I Am Yours. And I, yeah. you know, and she had like yelled it at me and I yelled back, I am a person. <laughs> and I realized, oh my gosh, that's why the wound tree wasn't working was because I was trying to say it, to, to do the voice of this book in this very, like, self-healthy, um, you know, intelligent um, teacher voice, but 
I, that wasn't my background. Mm-hmm. And I realized I had to, and I was using a third person voice and talking about myself and talking about other people, case studies kind of thing. And I was, you know what? I have to just tell the story that I have lived. I have, I have, though I'm a person, that's the one, that's my guide, guidepost and that's my beginning. And so mm-hmm. that was November 28th after Thanksgiving, I sat down and I had this, I, I wrote, um, you know, the, the section where there is, uh, um, that section that comes around like page 244, I want to say, it's in the galley. So it, it's probably a, a different page in the actual final book. <laughs> but it's uh, where I, I write, um, I am 11. Papa says, boys will be boys. I am 18. And then I am 23. I am 24. And I, I kind of list all of the different sexual predators and traumas that have entered and left my life. And Mm -hmm. I saw, oh my gosh, that was the narrative of trauma that I was subjected to. And it was that, and I saw that was almost like an, um, it was a portal into as well as a beginning outline for a book. Because it told the female condition. Well, and it was very powerful with the way that you Mm -hmm. used you know, I'm 23. I'm fortunate my rape is quick and relatively painless. He is economical mm-hmm. with time, right. force, and me. And you're just, yes. like, I still Listen. get goosebumps when I read it mm. because it is, it's just that powerful, quick. So it's amazing that that's where the book really was birthed from. Thank you. And and it was also, it was a parallelism. It was, um, you know, like the... When, when you see the highlight reel of someone's life, mm-hmm. and I wanted to show the trauma reel of someone's life. Yeah. And, and that's very hard that to do. Is some thing, thing, oh, thank you. Um, again, again, it's like this, you have to do really a, a delicate hand when writing about mm-hmm. all of that. Um, and, um, but yeah, it, it, it showed me that there was a book here, because the book wasn't about having a laundry list of trauma was about Mm -hmm. I knew that I wanted to create a manual of healing and so my job then was to figure out how do I do that for myself and to use this book as a transformative tool for myself and therefore for any reader um, Mm -hmm. who would enter the the book at page one find this list on page uh, 244 and then by you know page 318 will have gone through the transformation into healing and strength. And mm. so, yeah, so I gave myself 365 days to write the first draft. And because mm-hmm. uh, I figured if the earth can orbit the almighty sun in 365 days, surely I can do the same around myself. And I'm so glad that I, at that point in my life, I didn't have a single author friend to mm-hmm. advise me that 365 days is quite a short amount of time to write mm-hmm. the first draft of a book. And so I call it the utility of futility, where I just thought, well, that seems like a really long time. Surely I can figure, I can bust one out then. And so <laughs> I just kind of, and that's what all of my family members told me too. They were like, oh, that's a really long time. Because 
we're all avid readers, but not mm-hmm. nobody else had, you know, was a writer. So they were like, oh, come on, surely you should, you shouldn't do it. And I mean, that's a really generous amount of time. And um, so, yeah, I, I just wrote the first draft. Then I gave myself six months to learn about the publishing industry and at the same time revise the 600,000 words into something <laughs> more pitchable. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I just, I started looking through publisher. I got a Publishers Weekly uh, uh, subscription, and each month was $25, right? And so I gave myself three months, because um, 75 bucks is a lot of money, especially mm-hmm. back then when I, I, I was, that's when I was working at a daycare center for $11 an hour. Yeah. And so I, I budgeted my my querying time, and I said, okay, I had, I had six uh, three months, to understand how the publishing industry works, and I gave myself six months to find, to to make contact, and gain the affection of my number one agent choice, Lisa Demona, um, and and uh, it worked. I uh, I managed to do that, and sh- uh, Lisa read my draft number four, and um, that was in it was. In September 2015, she offered me representation. We signed in November 2015, um, so about a year after I finished that first draft, uh, and and we signed. Um, I got my agent on draft number four, and then we took it through draft draft number five, six, seven, and we started pitching draft number seven to various publishers. Mm-hmm. And I Am Yours was on submission for almost a year and a half until we found my world's perfect publishers, Amberjack Publishing. And um, their pitch letter to us, was ver- their proposal letter to us was very similar to my query letter to Lisa, oh, where wow. they listed all of their goals and dreams and what they could see, what they envisioned with this book. Mm-hmm. Um and so we knew, like, this is the person, these are the people who speak our language. Mm, um, they get it. They get it, yeah. Because, uh, I mean, a lot of the rejections, we got, I received very, um, I never received a clear rejection from any agent or publisher. It was, I mean, it was always, it was just always, it was, yeah, it was always a clear rejection, but it was always shrouded in a lot of, niceties and and genuine yes. genuine uh praise so they were like this the beauty the language is beautiful you definitely have a story um we just don't know how one of the biggest things people said was you know it's very unusual it's a it's a very unusual book there's this device of you know the imaginary best friend device there's also it's very unusual to come across a memoir that stretches the entire lifespan of the author versus mm-hmm. focus, being focused on one theme or one age period of an author. Mm-hmm. And should you like to edit it down and focus it on one theme, such as anorexia and your healing process or your life as a model and the beauty culture, that would be much uh, more tangible for us. Um, to 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 wrap our hands around and to and easier to sell, and I kept on saying, "Well, thank you very much, but no thanks," because mm-hmm. um, I I knew from the beginning that I wanted to write a narrative about the larger human condition because that's I had big dreams for this book. I wanted to 
I wanted it to be used as a teaching tool for high schools, for colleges, and for people to mm-hmm. be able to use it as uh, to to um, to go through their own lives. And to, and I did, and I knew that if I narrowed the vision down to one theme or one age period, I would not be allowing my book to have that possibility anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. And, I can't uh, even imagine so, it without that. <laughs> right? And it would be a whole different book. Uh, mm-hmm. So much of, um, yeah, it's, its resonance comes from stretching the 31 years, going through racism, misogyny, beauty culture, trauma, mm-hmm. uh, relationships with caregiving for children, abusive relationships, marriage, uh, relationships with my parents. That's what makes the book what it is. And just mm-hmm. focusing it on one period or one theme would it wouldn't be the same, and it would lose its its luster. I can't see it without the component of having it in that autobiographical, I'm butchering the word, but with <laughs> that okay. portion where it, it is from birth until 31. And I just think right. it's so different, and it's what people want. I think because mm. we're being told, you know, it can only be this many pages. It can only be this. There are exceptions to the rule. And when something is so beautifully written and when the structure, it just works with the storytelling. It mm. wouldn't work Thank any other know. way. So it was worth it to hold out for that right publisher. But during that time, like one and a half years, I know people that have been pitching for a year and they're ready to throw, right. throw the well in they're like you know maybe this just isn't for me I think I submitted maybe 15 times and then I was like okay I need to write change everything (laughs) so how did you how did you manage during that time did you have a a point where you're like maybe this just isn't going to happen or were you determined that this is going to happen it just hasn't come across the right desk yet right it was actually it was the latter one and I and I used um so when I I signed up for publishers weekly and I and I, you know, had access to that database of different agents uh, and agencies around the world. And I made my list of top uh, 15 agents to query based on their bios mm-hmm. and their websites. And, um, and I started pitching from agent number 15. And Lisa was agent number one. And so mm-hmm. I started pitching draft number two from agent number 15 and 14. Because And I knew that, yes, there were still things about the book that I needed a lot of help with. And so I, but the, I also wasn't emotionally married to the idea of being represented by agent number 15 or 14, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it wasn't a high-stakes emotional game for me. And also, mind you, at this, that, by that time, I was, what, 32 or, or 31? And I had all, I've been in the acting and modeling industry since I was 15 years old. So mm-hmm. putting myself out into the world, I've put myself in front of vultures before, right? So getting yeah. rejected is not a big deal for me. Mm-hmm. And I also have a very clear understanding of what I do well, what my skills are, and where I need help as an mm-hmm. artist, as a voice, as a speaker, as a writer. And, as, um, and I've, I, you know, by the time I was 31, I'd already had 16 years of working with directors, working with coaches, working with agents in the acting industry and music industry. So um, being, I, I have a good, I have a really good um, skill of navigating what criticism to 
to take in and use to improve my work. And then what criticism I can just identify as like, you know what, that's their problem. They're projecting their insecurities on, on me. It's mm-hmm. not my responsibility. I can just let that criticism go, right? So yeah. um, I find, you know, rejection just very helpful. I take what I need and I let go what I don't. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, uh, so it was easy for me to navigate all of that and 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 I started using the querying process for also a way to understand what people in the industry were seeing about the book and what they mm-hmm. found were uh, strong elements and what they thought were elements that could use work because I would get these um, rejection emails back from agent number 15 14 13 and they would and then they would say things like they would note the things that they thought were very strong and they would note the things that needed work. And so I would take their feedback and layer it in into the next mm-hmm. draft, into the next draft and so on. And then um, I made it, uh, I was, you know, and, and most, and because the manuscript was strong enough from, you know, by the time I was pitching and querying, mm-hmm. they would ask for the entire manuscript. So I was getting this really in-depth feedback on the entire manuscript, and I was using all of that feedback to improve each draft, each consecutive draft. Mm-hmm. And two agents, they asked to speak to me on the phone, and uh, again, I, I received amazing information from them that I could use to improve my manuscript. And one of them also um, gave me a reader report, an in-house reader report. So a reader report, if you, if you get a freelance editor to give you a reader re- report, it's, mm-hmm. it's like anywhere from 1000 to $2,000. And thankfully, um, the manuscript was strong enough that this agent used one of their in-house uh, readers to give me this reader report. So I got this really detailed document telling me what, parts were strong and what parts they thought, you know, the um, suggestions they had. And one of their suggestions, some of their suggestions were really helpful and other suggestions were things I was like, I'm not going to use that. Being one of them was, oh, let's narrow down the focus on one age group or one theme um, because that's easier. That's actually a quicker and easier sell, you know, Mm -hmm. because you have your 90 second pitch much easier. It's far easier that way. Right. Uh, because as of now, like, I am yours, is a story of a woman's life <laughs> as she goes through everything under the sun, right? Which is, it mm-hmm. feels, it's the most accurate thing, of, uh, accurate way to describe the book, but it also feels very vague unless you, you're, um, unless you have experience with my work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so I, um, I took that reader report and they also sent me they suggested that I hire a freelance editor. And, um, yeah, and freelance editors, again, um, I mean, also by that, at that time I was working at the daycare center and I was also, uh, I had taken on another job as a cashier at Whole Foods. So, you know, I was making, again, $11 an hour. So there was no way in hell that I was going to be able to afford a freelance editor to give me, to, to, to come into my manuscript and um, help me edit it for it to gain the affections and attention of a, a New York agent, which is like, and I, and I was like, I don't need that. I, I'm going to figure mm-hmm. this one out because anytime I feel like, oh, the gatekeepers of an industry are saying that now I have to dole out a huge chunk of change, yeah. my, you know, I was born in a third world country and I'm a 
hustler and a fighter. So the the moment I sniff out privilege and gatekeepers, I'm like, I'm my fire just rises, and it's not my ego. It's my it's my resilience, my instinct for resilience, saying, you know what, I'm going to reverse engineer this, and I'm going to teach myself how to edit, because I refuse to pay someone ten thousand dollars when, first of all, I don't have it. And $10,000 for me to then gain the attention and affection of a gatekeeper, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. Because actually that's how so many people, they, so many talented artists, they give up on their dream of publication mm-hmm. because at, it becomes a monetary thing. They can't afford oh, yeah. an MFA and they are under the myth that only after an MFA will you gain access to a network of influencers who can get you a meeting with an agent. No, exactly. that is not always true. Um, yeah. And so it become, so anytime I sniff out, oh, somebody wants me to write a check so that my dream can come true, my lioness just begins to roar. And, mm-hmm. and I tell myself, no, I'm going to figure this out. So um, that's when I taught myself how to edit. And, and that's I so important. Number, yeah, because then it's, I hold the power and mm-hmm. my self-esteem grows, you know, and, and yeah. so that when I did sign on with Lisa, she loved that I, had, I was delivering her a manuscript and I was delivering her an author who had a really, really strong understanding of, I have a, of her own voice, of her manuscript, mm-hmm. of how to sell it, mm-hmm. of how to sell herself, you know, um, and that was well, part of what, like, I think people have been, why people have been drawn to, to me, as well as this book, uh, it's, you can tell that it, it has come from a great deal of scrappy self-work, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, and I love that you became your own editor, because for myself, even, yeah. when I, I started in 2013, I had no clue what I was doing, you know, I got a lot of bad advice, a lot of bad direction, I ended up spending thousands and thousands like a disgusting Mm. amount of money on editing that turned my book into something it wasn't and it wasn't what I wanted and And it's it really is so powerful when you take your work into your own hands and you you teach yourself to self-edit and you go over it again and again and you take that feedback and apply it because Mm. you know at the end of the day you have to be so invested in what you've written and I didn't like getting something back and saying, no, that's not my voice. I didn't write that. I don't want you putting in your words. I just want direction. And so I think it's just so great to hear of somebody saying, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to spend this ridiculous amount of money, you know, and it can be very discouraging. A lot of people think, you know, I, I had a moment where I was like, I don't know if it's ever going to happen because I don't have an MFA. I don't have these crazy contacts, you know, right. I think it's just when you're passionate enough, you keep driving yourself to. Mm -hmm. And, and it was definitely, I was, I was so passionate about, um, and it was never driven by ego. It was, Mm -hmm. it was driven by, it was like I said, how, um, you know, I began writing on yours because I wanted to create a guide for healing for Mm -hmm. myself as well as others. And through the writing process, I, went, I underwent that transformation. I entered mm-hmm. the writing process as a woman who was severely anorexic, a mm-hmm. woman who would berate herself 
through her inner monologue every day, a woman who was still capable of falling into abusive relationships. And by the final scene, by the final chapter of that book, I had turned into a radically different person. So I knew, mm-hmm. and I had become the woman I knew I, I had potential to become, a human being who was grounded in her self-worth and value and and, and resilience. And mm-hmm. so I knew that the book, it worked. As a transformative tool, it worked. And so it was that, that knowledge, that certainty that was driving my ambition. It was driving my work ethic. It was also driving my faith in this book. So that every time I got a reje- rejection from those early agents or early publishers, all I would do was realize, well, but the book worked on me. So all I have to do is find the person who is willing to let the book into their heart and their mind. Mm-hmm. And they too, by virtue of being human, they will feel the transformative effect of this book. And they will mm-hmm. offer representation or, or they'll offer publication. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and, and, and actually every time I would receive an early rejection if I started to feel any kind of, you know, woe is me or hesitation or self-doubt, I would literally just open up the manuscript and read a few pages and I would feel the voice of the book come into me again and fill me up with love, comfort, and confidence. And I would feel that and I would also mm-hmm. realize, yep, this book works. There is value yeah. in this. It works. And I just need to keep on finding, keep on going until I find the right person who too can see that transformative value and potential in this book. Mm-hmm. So I guess well, and, was, um, and you did. That's you my, found that. Thank you. Thank you. And that's, that's my message to other authors who are in their querying process, who are in their editing process, who are in the trenches still trying to find publication is, you know, work on your manuscript until you can feel it transform and radically shift the cells of your being. Mm. And then trust that by virtue of being human, another agent, another human being in the form of an agent, the form of a publisher, they will find and feel that transformative effect that lives inside of your book and they will offer your, that that ticket to being that ticket to representation that ticket to publication. Mm-hmm. I just I'm I so you know I'm so invested in how well this book is going to do. I think it's going to be amazing. <laughs> Thank you. I but hope so. I, I mean, I'm so I've done everything I'm, I can. <laughs> yeah, and you so. really have. I think a lot of. Uh, new writers and when they're querying sometimes they're told you know you don't have a platform what's your platform and I think so many people have gotten discouraged by that right so you had no platform and and built from from having no platform really not only did thank you um thank you I didn't have an MFA I did not have a single published essay credit to my Mm -hmm. name I all I had was this one very specific book in mind, and my job was to figure out how to write this book. And once I wrote mm-hmm. that manuscript, that was the one thing I had to my name. 
And um, and then and so I think that's and and I told myself, oh, you know, if by the time this hits bookshelves, if I'm capable of building my building up my resume and publishing credits, if I'm capable of getting a few like nominations under my belt and getting my <laughs> my my voice out into the world, it will be a really a really um, uh, like a nourishing and valuable thing for other artists to see mm-hmm. because they'll mm-hmm. be encountering this book after they've already, you know, gotten some wind of, of my name. Yeah. Right. And so I mm-hmm. love that this book ends the, the final page is long before all of this splashy stuff. Yeah. Yes. Right. And, and I, uh, and I, because I also, I hate Hollywood's like, cliche ending and cliche definition of success is now she has, you know, won the National Book Award or she's won an Oscar (laughs) and the perfect partner and therefore we're allowed to close the movie or close the book and that is the ultimate success that every human being is supposed to buy for. I, Mm -hmm. first of all, I didn't have that to show of in 2013 Mm -hmm. nor did I want to ever um, fall into that stereotype and trope. Mm-hmm. And regurgitate that well, yet again, and put that pressure yet again on human beings. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, yeah. it's so inspiring, especially for people that you know we've heard that so long, and I think it's finally starting to shift. I feel like publishers, yes. editors, they're all saying, you know, it's not so much about your numbers; it's about you know yes. cultivating and building these their communities. Like Portland is amazing for that, and it's why yes. I visit again and again. Because it's just everyone's Thank so supportive, everybody's so kind and shares things. And Thank I know you. one of the things we always sort of like discuss is the importance of pre-orders. And you made this really mm. great social media post about what pre-orders mean. And, mm. you know, I'm just going to bullet point it, but you, you mentioned bookstores. You. you know, they're encouraged by pre-orders. And they'll stock you know, your book more importantly and and showcase them prominently when right. people take the time to pre-order. Um, they're, par- they're also counted as a part of first week sales and taken mm-hmm. into consideration for bestseller lists. So that first week is really crucial for a lot of authors. And the pre-orders right. really fuel that, right? So, it does. you know, it's, well, it's, it's so and, important. And it's, it really is important. And it's, at the end of the day, it's not about the money or the sales. It's mm-hmm. it's about creating the creating the the momentum for a book so that it is mm-hmm. it has the potential to arrive in the hands and deliver the love to those it was written for. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. and totally. um, and that's what, especially you know, this is. All of us, every every author has such. It's an offering of love. That's what books are, and mm-hmm. it's um, in a crowded marketplace. It's about how do we, in a very uh, integrity-driven, authentic, authenticity-driven way, how do we take mm-hmm. something that is a product and allow it to travel, uh, to land in the homes of those who need it. Um, exactly for those it was written for. You know, mm-hmm. and and um, I'm so proud that like this, you know, this memoir. It's the first memoir ever published 
by a Bangladeshi woman to speak on an abusive marriage, to speak on mental illness, to speak on eating mm-hmm. disorders, to, te- to speak on finding her power. It's a, it's a radical thing. And uh, if we think it's radical in the American market, just imagine what it will mean for Bangladesh, right? Um, oh, absolutely. It's a total yeah. road opener. And it's so, I'm sure, it's so inspiring for Bangladeshi women everywhere as well. Thank I you. mean, I mean everywhere so. in general, but like, <laughs> but also, <laughs> yeah. as it is. It's, and, and, I, and I've been so... Um, I've been so, 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 so excited and proud to see how the book resonates so deeply with men as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because, again, you know how we began this interview with me saying that I, I really took the time to develop a voice that was all about compassion, loving kindness, non-judgment, because I wanted to create a book that spoke to every person and I feel mm-hmm. that the moment we allow any kind of antagonism or righteous fury come in to creep into our voice it mm-hmm. alienates so many people it alienates the very people so true. we need it to be part of this conversation for collective healing and collective evolution you know mm-hmm. um, for for abuse culture to to change, we need not only those who have been abused to be part abused to be part of the conversation, but we also need those who have been abusive to be part mm-hmm. of the conversation. Yeah, for it's like you know the conversation in a Me Too post Me Too world. It's it's not just on women to learn how to protect ourselves for heaven's sake. We know how to protect ourselves. It's about exactly all of us raising our sons, raising each other with authentic respect, compassion, and empathy for towards women, right? Mm-hmm. So that those young boys don't grow up to be abusive partners. Those young boys who were born innocent, who were born with love in their hearts, aren't taught to hate women and, and then grow up to be uh, abusive employees or abusive partners. And so... I wanted to write a book that was very warm and welcoming. And that's why Mm -hmm. you'll see, you know, whether it's online or through Love Letter Monday or in this book or any of my essays, the voice is always radically loving. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because we need everyone to be brought into, exact, thank you. And we need everyone to be part of this conversation of healing and evolution for society Mm -hmm. to truly progress. I'm so proud that, you know, um, thank you. Uh, my, my readership is right down the middle. Uh, I mean, it's mm-hmm. every gender, every, every age group as well. Um, for everyone from, like, uh, young teens, you know, middle, middle age readers uh, mm-hmm. to women and men in their 60s and 70s. And because, you know, social media and my website, they allow for all of these analytics. And it's, um, yeah, it's all there. Um, so I'm enormously proud because, you know, I started in 2013 and it was very important for me. You know, I made that that list of, um, the, you know, page 244 yes. of I am 11, I am 18. And alongside mm-hmm. of it, on you know, and I write about it in I Am Yours, that when I 
when I flew on the plane from JFK to PDX Airport, Portland Airport, um, I wrote a list of the values my book, my future book would hold, and the number one was love. Mm-hmm. And, the, and number two was integrity. Number three was compassion and authentic forgiveness and welcome towards every reader. And, uh, yeah, so... And it has. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So, um, yeah, I'm excited about that. Um, mm-hmm. and it, yeah. I think it's just, it's been amazing to watch over, because I, I got the advanced reader copy months ago, but we just couldn't mm, get, right. I couldn't get scheduled. And so oh, it's been yeah. so fun to watch the process as you're getting closer and closer to the publication date and seeing the beautiful Thank reactions you. that people are having to the work. Just how, like you said, it, it really is right down the middle and that gives such hope people to know that this isn't just it's not just women it's also men that are reading this and it's it's mm-hmm. done with such a lovely compassionate way to share it and I just feel like you did such a, a service to even oh, thank the, you so the much. subjects in your books and to people in general to be able to learn from this I just think it's so beautiful and I'm I'm thank so you. honored that I got to read it oh thank you so much and yeah, and it was really important, especially um, you know, watching watching where society has grown, like, you know, or or arrived um since two thousand sixteen election, the election of mm-hmm. Donald Trump mm-hmm. and feeling this you know, the the divisiveness, the hate mongering, the fear mongering that's going on and that was when, you know, I am yours was still in the submission process and I was yes. putting it through various drafts and I realized that, you know, here's a book that has great potential to become a tool for helping us reconnect with each other, reconnect with ourselves. And then because it's such a, you know, starting in the voice of a loving child, it's a very disarming um, and engaging way to step into these very fraught and potentially um, very intimidating conversations, right? Instead of just talking Mm -hmm. about, oh, let's talk about racism, Actually, what if we just yeah. look through the eyes of a child about how racism has affected her life? And maybe mm-hmm. then we can have a, 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 a thorough conversation about it in a way that is yeah. gentler on the heart. And, you know, it's just, I think all of us, we ask, we ask ourselves consciously or unconsciously every day, how am I contributing? What is my mm-hmm. life leading to? How am I adding to the conversation on, about the human condition, uh, what will my life leave behind? And uh, and I and I ask myself those questions every day. I, I actually write down quite write down those questions, and then I write down those answers to do a self reflection mm-hmm. every night to see like mm-hmm. what have I done? What have how am I contributing? Am I doing am I doing what I was born to fulfill? Am I really living up to the promise of being a voice for the voiceless? And mm-hmm. um, yeah, and so I'm I'm excited about the fact that this book is already being used to um, to initiate and have those those very necessary conversations about race, about gender equality, gender parity, mm-hmm. about misogyny and abuse culture, about how we evolve yeah. from that, how do we heal mm-hmm. from that, how do we heal from trauma? Um, yes, and. 
And I'm, I'm so excited and encouraged by all of the male readers who mm-hmm. are stepping up um, and, and feel, because I Am Yours is, it's not only an anthem and a love letter and a lullaby, it's also a call to action. It's a call to action for empathy. It's a call to action for connectivity. It's a call to action for all of us to do our part to mm-hmm. learn and rise into our best, our highest potential as human beings, as citizens, as global citizens, as, as American citizens, as citizens of, you know, the human race. This has just been the most amazing talk. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you I'm so, so much. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. And, uh, yes, it's... Um, I just I love having the opportunity to talk to you before mm-hmm. um, before February fifth, and I'm excited to see what happens. Me too. <laughs> and it's going to be amazing. And, um, thank you so much. And um, you know, I just learned today from my alma mater, Skidmore College. They've asked me to be uh, the alumna of honor this year um, oh, and to co-host oh. our reunion. Yes, and and I'll be. On my book tour, I start the book tour on February 5th, and every I'm going to uh, 10 different states, and mm-hmm. I, and all of those cities, we're not only doing the, the usual bookstore events, but we're also, I'm going to various high schools and middle schools and colleges oh, that's to talk to the students about, thank you about, you know, um, for the middle schools, I always talk about how to find your voice and find your strength in you know in amidst bullies how to how to find compassion and empathy towards bullies how to navigate all of that so of oh, course wow. it's, it's the basic message of you know finding our voice and finding our power and then you know in high schools it's more about re, you know finding your resilience um you know um being true to yourself becoming an agent of change and leadership in this world and then going to various colleges and speaking there. So, of course, I'm speaking at Skidmore. I'm speaking at a few other mm-hmm. universities as well. Um, this is all on my website and the events calendar. And um, and I'm just so grateful for this opportunity to, because it's, it's all about, you know, I, I have said it, I've said um, how this is a manual for healing, but I also wanted to create preventative medicine. Mm-hmm. Because wouldn't it be wonderful to speak to our young people before they oh, fall yeah. into anorexia, before, right? Um, before they fall into abusive relationships, mm-hmm. wouldn't it be wonderful to intercept that young girl's life before she starts hurting herself? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be wonderful to intercept oh. that young man's life before yeah. he starts wounding himself? Um, mm-hmm. Right, and so wouldn't it be wonderful to intercept that young person's life and remind them of the talent and power they hold within so that they don't fall into gang violence. They don't fall Absolutely. into a life of self-loathing, right? And all of that. And that to me is the, that for me, that's the most important part of my work is these opportunities I have to talk to young people and mm-hmm. to be a, a mirror and a reminder of the strength and the intelligence they hold within. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, I just, it's, I think it'll be, I feel like I I don't know if it's the wrong word, but I just feel like the timing can be better, and it just feels so revolutionary, and that it's necessary. It's so necessary, and the timing is just 
absolutely perfect right now, given everything that's, you know, happening socially and politically and all over the world. So I think this is going to be the greatest gift for everybody to have an opportunity to pick up. So so thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, and um, I was speaking at a at a few four schools last week, and one of the students, she stood up, and I think this is um, I, I I'm thankful that because my work always comes from this radically vulnerable place. Because I show my transparency, because I show my truth, it welcomes and invites others to stand up and mm-hmm. speak theirs as well. So one of the students, she stood up and she said she was a she's a survivor of rape and hearing hearing me speak has given her the tools to heal and have a mm. have a healthy and strong life. And so that's that to me is everything. Yeah. Right. Um oh, that's why absolutely. we're here. Art gives voice to what would otherwise remain silent. Mm-hmm. Be it our power, be it our truth the voice that we all have this um and the message we all carry that we were born to conduit into the world love 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 thank you thank you so much for listening to literary speaking i am yours is available for pre-order now through your local indie bookstore major retailers and amazon please remember to leave reviews on amazon and goodreads for our authors if you've enjoyed the show i'd be so grateful if you would take a moment to leave a kind review iTunes under Literary Speaking. Thank you and have a great day. Thank you for listening to Literary Speaking with your host, Crystal Lee Quibell. To start discovering how you can begin telling your story, go to crystalleequibell.com. That's crystalleequibell, Q-U-I-B-E-L-L.com. And sign up for Crystal Lee's newsletter. Join us again next week for more advice from your favorite authors and publishing professionals.